Lord, may we learn about our own faith, our own passionate spirituality. Lord, may we become people that are noted for that kind of a faith like Abraham that comes to trust you in any and every circumstance. Lord, may we desire you more than the things of this life. So, Lord, may we lay aside our distractions. May we lay aside those things that keep us from really concentrating on what your spirit wants to whisper into our soul so that we might walk away from here changed people a little bit more each time we come into this place. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you, if you would uh, like to pull out the little outline that's in your bulletin, and that will give you some of the, the points as we walk through it, as well as some applications for you to think about, because the important thing isn't just that we hear the word, but that we apply the word, we make it work in our life. Amen? And so on the other side, which you may or may not have had before, hi, Merritt, good to see you, um, is some questions for you. If you are in a small group, you, of course, don't have to use these, uh, but if you want to in your small group, I'm going to try each time um, to have some questions for small groups to work through, uh, to give them something to talk about that, that goes off of the sermon. And so you also, you may say, well, I'm not in a small group, which I would greatly encourage you to be in one or start one, that you would maybe use that in your personal meditation because we like to more than just a Sunday morning experience that you let God's Spirit speak to you during the week also. Now what I want to do, and you'll notice on the outline there is at the bottom, and I threw that on there from, from last week, five phases of interim ministry. I'm not going to really talk about those this morning. But just so you can look over that, that there is going to be a procedure that we'll go through. But that isn't the most important thing. The most important thing is the work that God does in our individual hearts and in the corporate heart of Chewila Evangelical Free Church. And so I would encourage you to be praying. I would encourage you to be seeking what God wants for you in this transition time as well as what he wants for this church. And so we are going to look at over the next probably oh, three to four months, we're going to look at what are the, the indicators of a healthy church. There are eight characteristics, and, and Dan Christian, who is uh, sick today, taught about, uh, had ten last week, so it's not, eight's not a magical number. Um, it is really just some indicators of well, how do we look at who we are and what a church is to say, what do we need to grow in? What things are important? And these particular eight were taken from a book called Natural Church Development. And this book says if you put all eight of those and you can put them at a high level in a church, that the church is sure to, almost sure to grow. And so it's about church health not just about church growth. So the first one of those that I think, and and this isn't necessarily the order the book does them, but it's called passionate spirituality. Because to me, this is the foundation. This is the starting point. Yes, programs are, are helpful. And lots of other things we'll talk about, you know, like worship and small groups and even structure. But None of it means anything if you don't have the Spirit of God living and growing in your heart. And not just, yes, I became a Christian 40 years ago or 20 years ago or 20 weeks ago, but I'm growing and I can see myself making progress. That's what we're going to talk about this week and next week, passionate 
spirituality. And so I want to start with kind of a story of devotion. So how many of you are college basketball fans? A few of you are. And we know about rivalries. Um, Gonzaga has, you know, St. Mary's and a little bit with the local schools or, or, or Wazoo and the Huskies when they play in football. Um, it doesn't seem to be as strong in basketball, but football, that's a big deal, the Apple Cup. But if you live in the state of Kentucky, there is no college basketball rivalry that even matters in the rest of the country but the University of Kentucky and the University of Louisville, 78 miles down the road in the same state. And so when you have a storied rivalry, stories of uh, radical devotion emerge from such things. Sometimes you wonder if they're true, but in this case... There was a woman, and she was sitting at the University of Kentucky Rupp Arena before the Louisville game, and she's sitting in this this place that's always sold out, and and there's an empty seat next to her. And this man walks up to her and says, Ma'am, I don't think I've hardly ever seen an empty seat in this arena, much less in the game with Louisville. Who in the world is supposed to be sitting here? And she said, Well, me and my husband, we've had these seats for 28 years. And he's deceased now. And he said, well, ma'am, couldn't you have found someone, a friend, a relative, who would come and sit with you? And she said, no, sir. They're all at my husband's funeral. <laughs> now, you've got to admit that, that if that's true, it's a pretty radical kind of devotion. When it comes to Christ, when it comes to our devotion to God, sometimes people have different ideas. Sometimes they're a militant fanatic. Or sometimes it's, it's a life you know, from, from this passionate fanatic, which isn't the right kind of passion always when they're militant. Or you have this kind of life of, of constant dutiful. I just go through it. I have to. My family taught me this. I've grown up with it. And so, but there's not a lot of heart in it. So sometimes it's too much heart in the wrong way, and sometimes there's not enough heart, and we settle for a performance-oriented, watered-down version of what the spirituality that we find in the Bible and what Jesus talked about, coming and living inside of our heart, not just being next to us, but inside of us, which is a radical concept. Nobody could even begin to understand that in New Testament times. And so they began slowly to... So, if we think about following God, often I, we, we have this idea that, you know, if I follow God reasonably well, then my life should turn out reasonably good, right? But the problem is when, when we don't follow, or when we do follow, and things don't turn out the way we want them to, then we're disappointed. And we wonder, what, what happened? Did I do something wrong? It's, and, and, you know, I've heard lots of stories and in the counseling rooms about people who are disappointed because God didn't come through with them the way they thought that they he should. And so we're going to talk not about how do we live the Christian life, because there is some you know good merit in that, but we're going to talk more about what does it mean to live the life Christian life with Christ in us and through us. And we'll speak later about Galatians 2.20 next week. Christ in me 
you know, the life I now live, I, I live by the, with the Son of God living in me. And it's a completely, you know, different idea of, of Christ in you living this life in his power versus we doing it in our own strength. And so Abraham is going to be our example this morning, a passionate spirituality. Now, don't look at his life and think he was perfect. I think if you know the story, he had lots of failings. And yet, you know, Galatians and, and Romans talk a lot about him as our type, our model. But let's start in Genesis 15. I know Pastor Dan left off, I think, at the very beginning, I think, of chapter 12. So you kind of know this will be the second time God's going to talk to Abraham about his descendants. Okay, so here we are in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, and in selected parts of the verses. The word of the Lord came to Abraham, or Abram, sorry, his name will become Abraham later, again, after chapter 12, in a vision. And he said, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir, a servant. And then the word of the Lord came to him, a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness, a very key verse in the Bible. So, in this story of Abraham, and, and all the way through chapter 22 and beyond, it's, and, and into the life of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, it's the promise of God that's the driving force that will be throughout the whole Old Testament, really, but especially in Genesis with the four generations of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so, here we have God's promise, and Abraham starts off well, and he says, he believed God, he trusted. Not just, you know, yes, this is a concept I understand, but he put his life into this. He put his, his feet and his actions into believing who God was. So years go by now. Here's the promise, remember, the driving force, verse 1 of chapter 16. Now Sarai, who would become Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now it was common in the Near East culture in the ancient times to have children through your servant. doesn't mean God thinks it's a good idea. But it was common around them. And so, you know, here's what Sarai's thinking. She hated to wait. He heard the promise years before. So she, she wants to kind of, you know, help God's plan along. Here, God, I'll, you know, I'm going to help you along. And, so, and, and in her mind, she's not doing anything wrong. And God had made this promise. And so she, it's up to her to figure out how to make it happen. And so she, she's going to do that helping. She wants God's promise, but she wants it now. She's kind of tired of waiting. So she wants to help God and his plan. So verse 4, Abram slept with Hagar, and she conceived and began to despise her mistress. That's Hagar. And then Sarai said to Abram, you, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. You know, my maid despises me now because you got her pregnant. And may the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave, Abram says, is in your hands. 
Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. There is all kinds of great marital and family dynamics to talk about in this, this family that gets passed on, but we won't do that today. But things are not going very well in the family. Hagar has a child named Ishmael, and God, you know, God could have stepped in. He could have kept her from getting pregnant. Why not? But God doesn't always rescue us from all, all of our bad choices, does he? Sometimes he lets us, this is what you want to do, then I'm going to let you do it. And so he doesn't step in and prevent the pregnancy. And now we have a messy situation. Hagar despises Sarai. Sarai is abusing Hagar. And Sarai is blaming Abram. Relationships are falling apart as everybody in the story is trying to get God's promises their own way. And right now it looks like Hagar is going to be the recipient of that promise. And so we have trouble. So point number one on your outline is that passionate spirituality waits on God's promises. You know, see the guy trying to move the rock? That's what we think we need to do. We need to move God's promises along. We need to make it happen in our own strength. But if we're talking about one of the basic things that's in Scripture is to wait on the Lord, like Psalm 46.10 talks about, is that we wait for God to do things that he wants to do in his time and in his power and stop trying to take things into our own hands. But, you know, waiting is hard. Anyone here who really enjoys waiting? Now, I hate waiting in lines. You know, if I'm at the grocery store and I see a line, I always try to pick the shortest one. Of course, God's always working on me, so that's the one where, you know, um, they, they have problem. They, they, the price isn't on the thing. And you think even with all the barcode things that that would work, but it doesn't always work, does it? And so I hate waiting in traffic. Traffic is one of my big nemeses that God continues to show me. And so, you know, the, the red lights, and why can't they get these working in order? And, and I hate to wait. And I even have to admit to you, I don't really am not so fond of waiting on God either. I want God to work. I want him to bring me this thing. I want the answer to be now. Take care of this person. Take them out. Bring this person in or whatever I want. I don't like waiting on God and his timetable is so slow. At least it feels slow to me. And so I want to ask you this morning, how are you waiting on God right now? You may be thinking, let's get a pastor. Can he be here by, okay, all right, I'll wait. August 1. You might be thinking. Or something else that's going on. Two families in our church are waiting on medical procedures for their young daughters. You know, and, and that, that's excruciating. Some of you may be waiting for a job. Some of you may be waiting to get out of a job. And so, how are you waiting on God right now? What might he want to teach you in that waiting, because that's kind of what the waiting is about. What does God want to teach you about waiting on him? We rest in the Lord, but that's a lot harder to, to do than to say. So now we're going to start back with Abraham, as he and Sarai are not doing so good at waiting. It's 13 years later 
We've already had some years pass for Hagar to get pregnant and have Ishmael. Abraham's name is now Abraham and not Abram in chapter 17, verse 16. The text says, I will bless Sarah and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. See, the the promise is expanding. So verse 17, Abraham fell face down and he laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? It's impossible. I mean, come on. If God wanted to get Sarah pregnant, he would have done it, you know, what, 40 years earlier, if we were counting by, or 50 years earlier. And so this is way out of the realm of, of human possibility. Abraham is having a hard time visualizing God's unexpected methods. Because, come on, it's not logical. 90 isn't going to happen. I don't know that that's ever happened in our recorded history. So Abraham is reasoning like all of us would. God promised me an heir. Sarah is past the years of childbearing. So the heir has to be Ishmael. I mean, there's no, it's, it's logical, isn't it? Nothing else makes any sense. But Abraham is thinking in this linear, logical way that I tend to like to think in. And he misses the fact that God's will can only be accomplished in God's way. We talked before about God's timing, but this is God's will being accomplished also in God's way, that we don't go pushing and trying to make things happen that God doesn't want us to do it that way. And often that way that God does things is unexpected. I love the expression that God writes straight in the crooked lines. We don't always see what he's doing. And he doesn't always want us to see what he's doing. So when we read Isaiah 55, 8, and it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We need to stop and think that we don't have all the answers about how things ought to be, do we? God has the way he wants to do things, and really, if the truth be told, he doesn't need us to do it. He chooses us and wants us to be involved, but he can do whatever he wants because he's God. But I want God's blessings my way, and I don't understand how can God make his way so hidden and unexpected? Why is it like the turning out like this? And so I don't like this hidden ways. I don't like these things that are unexpected. I want God to be predictable, don't you? I want things to, if I do this and this and this, it'll turn out like that. I want to control the process. Someone once said, control is the greatest of all illusions. I want to avoid pain. I want to gain blessing. And so the best way to do that in my economy is to control things. So verse 18 In chapter 17, Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So he's pleading for Ishmael's future. You know, so even though Sarah hates Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham does not. So there's a good father thing going on there. He loves his son, Ishmael, and he wants God to give him what he wants. But unfortunately, making Ishmael the heir of all these things isn't what he needs, but Ishmael does get blessed. Abraham does answer God's 
um, Abraham, uh, God does answer Abraham's request. And maybe Abraham should have said, please make sure he gets taken care of and, and lives a good life that honors you. But he asked, bless him. And Ishmael becomes a great nation or nations. He's the father of who? The Arabs. And for from that point forward, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of the future born son Isaac would be constantly in conflict. They're in conflict today. There might be some of a sense of, of peace, but believe me, having lived in the Middle East, I can tell you the Arabs and the Egyptians, who don't want to be called Arabs, do not like the Israelis. I don't care what peace accords are in place. There is not on the streets of Cairo any love for Jews, for Israel, no matter what the governments are doing. And so this is the outcome, I think, of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar's trying to get God's plans and promise their way. So have you ever begged God for something? You just really thought you had to have this thing, and God answered your prayer, and then later you thought, I wish I'd never asked for that. That ever happened to anybody? You get your prayer answered only to discover you're sorry God answered it? So that's kind of where we are in this story. We're so intent on having God's blessing that we miss that, you know what, God's blessing are not God's primary way of wanting to interact with us. It isn't sort of like, you know, Santa Claus at Christmas, just give us, give us stuff. But that often is what we think, even if it's not tangible stuff. I want blessings. I want different things to go well. But that is how God may want us. Blessings can even get in the way of our passionate spirituality. You ever think about that? If you got all these blessings, then you stop trusting God. You stop looking for the relational connection to him because it's just all about getting things. Christian author and psychologist Larry Crabb writes, until we develop a taste for God, we prefer a better life of blessings from God over a better hope of intimacy with God. Let me read that again. Until we develop a taste for God, we prefer a better life of blessings from God over a better hope of intimacy with God. We're like the child at Christmas. We are more excited about the Father's presence. Can we put the slide up? His presence, his gifts, than his presence. Is that true? Even partly for you? It's like, oh, I just love those blessings. I like the presence. But God's presence, I mean, that's just, it's so intangible. I can't put my hands on that. And yet, if you read some of the, the authors through history that talked about, you know, like Brother Lawrence of Practicing the Presence of God, who talk about how much more fulfilled their life is when they find the presence of God. A man named David Bible wrote, B-I-E-B-E-L, not Bible, Bible, in Men of Integrity, writes this, I still don't understand, nearly 10 years later, why the Lord allowed my two sons to be afflicted with infantile bilateral striatal necrosis. Not sure what that is, if you're a doctor and can explain it, but it wasn't good. I don't understand David writes, why Jonathan died or why Christopher lived. Today, he says, Christopher is 16 
years old and nearly recovered. All I understand is this. Life is a riddle which God wants me to experience but not necessarily solve. Christians rush to put God's truth into little boxes, neatly systematized, categorized, organized, and principled. Do we ever do that? We only put God in these, just here's how things all work. But God's perspective on suffering is too big for any of that. While for some, spirituality is defined by what you know, God may be more concerned with how you handle what you cannot know. Not to say that what you know doesn't matter, but maybe the real test of our faith is how do you handle what you cannot know or what God won't tell you? So number two point in your outline, passionate spirituality desires the blesser more than the blessings. We wait on God and we want the blesser. We want God. We want relationship more than we want the outcome of having everything go well because when it does go well, we stop seeking the blesser. If for so long we get every one of our prayers answered the way we want, then we just use God like a magic charm. So where are you in living less for God's blessings? and more for intimate relationship with him. Where are you in this presence, present, or presence? Which do you want more of? God's hand that gives you stuff or God's face? And how, how much do we, do we see God as like a big cosmic vending machine? You all know what a vending machine is. You put your money in, you push the button, and your bar, candy bar or bag of Doritos pops down at the bottom. But what if we see God, what if we think of God like that? You know, if I put in my coins of prayer, going to church, reading the Bible, giving offerings, having good behavior, and when I put those coins in there and I push that button for a blessing, it better come down to the bottom of the machine so I can take my blessing. And we see God more like a big vending machine to give us stuff than we do just seeking him even when things aren't going well. So do you want assurances in your life, in your prayers, that if you follow God, your marriage will work, your children will turn out right, your finances will be adequate, your health will be good, and you push that button and you think, you know, I better get the job that I want. My ministry better work. But God has a better way. It's not a way of pressure and performance. If you perform well, I'll give you the blessings. I mean, sometimes God does that, and sometimes there's a natural consequences that goes when you do things right. You know, if you eat right and exercise, then, you know, you can be blessed with better health, but there's no guarantees, is there? And one person says, why bother eating well? Because, you know, no matter how much health food you eat, you're still going to die. But do you want those assurances if you do everything right, then your marriage and your family and your job and your neighborhood and your car and your house and everything will go well? But there's a pressure and a performance in that, isn't there? We seek God even when things don't go well. And so Abraham is now going to get the ultimate test and become what makes him the example in the rest of the Bible for faith. 
We're going to go on with the story of Isaac, who's now finally born. And now Isaac is probably, you know, like a young teen, or maybe he could be a young preteen, but he's still, he's old enough to walk, he's old enough to understand, so it's been some years. And now comes the supreme test. You all know this story in Genesis 22. Verse 1, God says to him, Abraham, take your son, verse 2, your only son whom you love, like God would do with Jesus centuries later, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. Maybe I had to say, not, not Ishmael, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Some commentators think Mount Moriah would become where Jerusalem is and the Temple Mount is. I kind of like that idea. So imagine, though, you hear this. You live for this promise to get fulfilled. It's finally fulfilled decades and decades later. And now God says, okay, now I want you to give it up. I want you to kill him. And you imagine the amount of swirling conflict and emotions going through Abraham's mind. How could God ask this? How can I give up the most important thing in my life? And how in the world are are we going to fulfill God's promise of a great nation if I go kill the heir right now? He had to have thought through that. We're going to look at a Hebrews verse that hints at what was really also going on. But sometimes the circumstances of life feel contradictory to the way we think a loving God should arrange them, don't they? Sometimes things just don't make sense. They feel contradictory. How can God be loving and gracious and allow this bad circumstance? And that has to be one of the top couple of questions non-Christians struggle with with God. How, How does a loving God allow these things to happen? And we struggle with it too. Here's Abraham struggling with that very question of a loving God. And, and a tragedy. Only this time God's asking you to bring about the bad circumstance. And we, we struggle to understand why and our spirituality wanes. It falters. It stumbles. And that's okay. We should wrestle with things. And in the wrestling we might stumble. But where are we going to end up? So we find where Abraham ends up in verse 3 of chapter 22. Early the next morning Abraham got up And loaded his donkey, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. So not only does Abraham have the mental anguish, but he's got to do all the menial tasks to make this horrible thing happen. He's got to get the donkey saddled up. He's got to walk for three days in a three-day hike, which is lots and lots of miles, right? So 60, 70, 80 miles, however long he could go in a day. He has to cut his own wood for the burnt offering. And it seems like Abraham is asked to do the impossible and to pour salt into the wound. God says, and I want you to do all this labor to make the impossible Thing that I'm asking you to do. you got to do those things. I'm not going to give you all this and make it easy for you. You ever think God asks too much of you? Do you think God's taking you too far beyond your abilities? Do you ever wonder that? 
Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. The journey, three days away, like I mentioned. It's like, and and imagine during that three days, the ordeal just kind of, you know, why not sacrifice on a closer mountain? Why three days? And so you got to think, three days walking, you know. What are you going to talk to Isaac about? Did you have a happy childhood? Got dreams for your life? And, And imagine, he walks and he thinks, And imagine now, Abraham is laying at night, fitful dreams, and he wakes up and he sees those stars that in chapter 12 and 15 have been God's promise. And he has to think about those stars and think about that promise. So there's a lot going on swirling around in Abraham's head, but his passionate spirituality pushes on anyway. So when we're in the middle of a difficult circumstance, it really does feel like it, they just drag on and on and on. They, they feel to, so long, too long, don't they? And that's where Abraham is. It's going to take a while. And we ask God, so why so long? Can't we just be done with it? Just tell me what you want me to learn and let's get on with life and get this thing over with. you ever feel like that? You want the next week to be here already? Chapter 22, verse 9, when they reached the place, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Isaac isn't struggling to get off like we do on the altars God puts us on. Verse 10, then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. So, I mean, we're talking, we got to the very last second God let this go on until the, it, like right when he's ready to actually kill his son. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord, which a lot of conservative commentators would say is the person of Jesus, calls out to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Of course, if this is Jesus, he already knew how the story would come out, but we don't know, and so it's recorded in Scripture this way. But we find Abraham's driving life purpose is devotion to God. It's his passionate spirituality in any and every circumstance. That even when it's the thing he wants the most, his son, and even when we're talking about fulfilling the promises of his own greatness to be a father of many nations, he's willing to, to give them all up. Are you? Am I willing to give up what matters most? So, Abraham placed the fulfillment of God's promises in God's hand to do God's way. Hebrews 11.19 says, He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. So that would tell me Abraham thinks, okay, I'm going to kill him, but God's going to resurrect him because God's going to fulfill his promise. He said he would. I mean, man, the dogged determination to do and trust God, to say, God, it's your promise. It's in your hands to complete it and fulfill it, and you're going to do it your way. God's promise done in God's will done in his way, in his time. So number three for today is passionate spirituality seeks God in every circumstance. Every circumstance. 
We continue to seek him. And it doesn't mean you never waver, but you work through that to put it into God's hands. Some of our ambitions are obviously blatant self-serving. They're easy to see. And some masquerade as spiritual. But I'm doing this, it'll advance the kingdom. The ends justify the means, right? How often have we heard that and seen that? Even in spiritual things. But I know this isn't maybe the best way to do it, but it's going to have a, a good outcome for the Lord. But it's just our own motives that God wants to break. They masquerade as kingdom, as God-oriented, and they're not. Because any motive that draws us away from God is having first place in our life to do God's will, God's way, and God's time. When we get pulled away from that, trying to do it our way, or at least a little bit our way, then it, it's something that God wants to take out of us. It's an idol, even. Can we trust God's unseen and unexpected plan is at work, even as we continue to seek him no matter what, in any and every circumstance? I'll close with a story out of the C.S. Lewis book from the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the books called The Silver Chair. And a girl named Jill is lost in a scary forest. And Jill has become terribly thirsty in her wandering lostness. And she finally finds a stream. But then as she comes up to the stream, she notices a lion who invites her to take a drink. Now, this is Narnia. It's an allegory. The lion is, a, is an allegorical picture of Jesus. So the lion has a conversation with Jill. And here's how it goes. Jill says, may, may I, could I, w- w- would you mind going away while I do take a drink? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Jill says, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? The lion says, I make no promises. Jill says, do you eat girls? The lion answers, I love this line, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Jill says, I don't dare come and drink. The lion says, then you will die of thirst. Jill says, coming a step nearer, oh dear, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And the lion says, there is no other stream. Jesus, the lion of Judah, is our only source of living water. We're not going to find it in our job even in a relationship with another person, in our kids, in our parents being a certain way, in the circumstances handling out to make sure the political landscape looks like we think it should. None of that is our true source of living water, is it? It's this intimate relationship where we figure out what it really means for Jesus to live in our heart and live out the Christian life with him in our heart, through him, not through ourselves. So if we draw near to him without conditions, we can discover there is a satisfying life even when circumstances aren't going well. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of searching, in the midst of unknowns, unanswered questions, relationships come to matter. That relationship with God comes to matter more than circumstance. So my closing question for you 
what will you choose? What living water source will you go looking for and drink from? Let's pray. Lord, we need you as our living water. And Lord, you understand in our human hearts all the different ways each one of us search for something that make us a little happier, a little more fulfilled, and and we don't even know how those things, those blessings take away from you and our intimacy with you. So Lord, it's a hard ask, but it's hard because our flesh inside of us, our soul, everything wants to take control, wants to manage things, wants to have the good things, and we think it'll make us happy. And sometimes it does a little We miss you, which will make us even more happy. Help us to know, how do we live this Christian life like Abraham, where no matter what, we're clinging to you and we're drawing nearer to you. We're getting closer and closer to you. And and our life and the fruit of the Spirit becomes more and more evident in our life. Show us how to arrive on that pathway to continue to seek that no matter what that we can engage and embrace passionate spirituality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.